0: Morning. It's good to see you this morning. Turn with me to Ruth, Ruth chapter one, and uh, we'll be looking at that text today, and we'll be thinking on the theme of the providence of our sovereign God, the providence of our sovereign God. Last week we looked at just kind of an overview, and we saw how. There would be a crisis and a solution and a crisis and a resolution. Uh, is basically the outline of Ruth, and we see that very clearly uh, in that overview, but I want us to dive in just a little bit more and to notice how God is working. Uh, it's interesting, most of the um, acknowledgement that God has done something doesn't come prior to God doing something, but it comes after in the thinking of the the writer and the author of Ruth. And so I want us to think about the providence and of our sovereign God. Um, Ruth begins, we see there, in the days when the judges ruled. It begins by describing those times as that, when the judges ruled. There was no king. The description here passes over the instability that must have existed during the time of Ruth, uh, during the time of Naomi and Elimelech uh, in Bethlehem. It was a time when there was no law per se uh, in that they weren't living it out. They weren't doing the things that God had called them to. They were freewheeling it, if you will. Everyone did as they determined was right in their own eyes. Imagine the civil unrest that must have existed during this day. Imagine the moral decay that just continued to erode as a result of no one following after God. Imagine, if you will, What was going on, the religious decline and people continually turning away from God and the ways of God and turning to their own desire. Imagine the unchecked corruption in leadership, in families, and so forth. You know, all these things are points that we could say about our own day. So we need to understand that there's uh, nothing new today that hasn't already existed. It existed during the days of Elimelech. It's a value, I believe, to think of how God works to accomplish his purposes throughout time, throughout history. He takes lives... Of men and women, and uses them for his glory in fulfilling his sovereign plans. In other words, God is not wringing his hands, wondering, I wonder how all this is gonna turn out. God's not thinking. You know, if I don't do something with this guy over here, this Rick fella, he's going to mess up all my plans. God's not thinking, you know, Elimelech, they, they went over there to Moab. Now what do I do? No, he takes these efforts of Elimelech and uses them to fulfill his sovereign plans. It's not the first time he's done that. If we think about it, consider the life of Joseph, uh, this arrogant little shepherd boy who was, his favorite, who was his father's favorite, who mocked his brothers and told them, you're going to bow down on me one day. Let me tell you all this dream. And they eventually threw him in a cistern and sold him into slavery. He went off uh, and ended up in Egypt. And there God used him and brought him to be second in command in all of Egypt, behind Pharaoh only. And when his brothers were there before him, he could have taken them out, which a lot of us probably would have done could have showed them up or anything like that. But no, what did he do? I'm Joseph. And he wept with them. And he said, don't be afraid. What you meant for evil, God intended for good. God takes the lives, uh, lives of people as he wills and uses them as he wills. This story has that flavor to it. The second example would be found in Habakkuk chapter 1 where God is taking Israel as a whole and they are in disarray. Sin is rampant where Habakkuk cries out, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And Habakkuk says, says this to the Lord, and the Lord answers, Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. I'm raising up Babylon, and they're going to destroy you. I am doing something, Habakkuk. I'm raising up an army that in 586 B.C., not long from now, they're going to come in and they're going to invade Judah and they're taking you out. Joseph couldn't see saving Israel and Egypt in his imprisonments. Habakkuk couldn't see that God was working in radical Wonderful ways to guard his name and to rescue his people. To bring them under judgment. He couldn't see it. Neither could Naomi see the misery of her life as a means that God would use to bring about David as king. I think it's important for us to think in those terms. I want us to look at three points today. First of all, I want us to see the suffering of God's providence. Second, I want us to see the hope of God's providence. Thirdly, I want us to see the salvation of God's providence. Providence. Not really a word you hear much, is it? Y'all use that in a sentence sometime this week. Everybody kind of look at you funny and you explain to them how God moves and works. Let me give you a brief definition of providence. Providence is the continuing and often unseen activity of God in sustaining His universe, providing for the needs of every creature, and preparing for the completion of his eternal purposes. We very much see the providence of God in the life of Ruth, Naomi, Boaz, and even David. First of all, let's consider the suffering that occurs as God works out his providence providential care. It says here that there was a famine in the land. We need to, when we see that, we need to think, God keeps his promises. You go, why do you think famine and then God keeps his promises? Because God said that if you would obey my word, I'll give you rains. If you'll obey my word, I'll cause all your crops to flourish. I'll cause all your animals to multiply. I'll give you many sons. But if you disobey, I'll dry up the fields. I won't send the rains. Remember, it's a time when there is no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me tell you what that equals. Everyone doing right in their own eyes is the epitome of chaos and sinfulness and moral degradation. And so it seems that we can conclude very easily that famine that was going on in those days was the result of the people of Israel turning against their God, turning away from His commands. Yes, those commands existed. Yes, those laws existed. This is after Sinai. and People did what they desired. So we can, with some accuracy, assume that the famine was a result of disobedience and idolatry. Secondly, I want us to see in this suffering that Ruth suffered the loss of her husband. That's not a light loss. That's a heavy They had come to this place, godless place, really. And now Ruth no longer had her husband. There had to be great sorrow in her heart, as widows feel. Perhaps the only comfort in this loss was that she had two sons. Two sons to care for her. Two sons to provide for her. Two sons to carry on the name of Elimelech. They were Ephrathites, it says. And so carrying on the name was a vital importance. Well, what's an Ephrathite? Do you all know another name for the city of Bethlehem? Ephrath. It was there that Rachel was buried. Ephrath represents more than likely the name of those who settled the city of Bethlehem. You could say they were charter members in the family of charter members. She had these two sons to care for her, to carry on the name of Elimelech, carry on that line, and what happened? They both died. They married, and perhaps were not married very long, Some total of their time in Moab was 10, 12 years. And these two sons married, and they died early enough to where there were no children born. So now Ruth is there with two daughters-in-law, and that's all there is. What this meant with both of the sons dying, it meant that this family would no longer exist. One of the penalties of not following after God, according to Deuteronomy chapter 29, is that God said, If they will not obey me, I will blot their name. I'll cause them to no longer exist. I'm telling you all this so that you can kind of feel the weight of despair that Naomi must have felt. The sadness and the sorrow and the hopelessness you know through the years i've noticed that there are some families and some people that seem to suffer more than others people who have lost not one not two but three children not one not two but four grandchildren. I'm talking about the same family, by the way. We lost that number of children and grandchildren. Naomi's feeling the weight of loss and the need for food, and the need for someone sustaining her and these daughters-in-law. I read a text from Romans 8 before my pastoral prayer. I want to share with you another one out of 2 Corinthians. It's one of my favorite texts in all of the Bible. Probably because I know it's possible to lose heart. Paul says in verse 16 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And I assure you, when you are walking through the sorrow and the pain and the hurt and the loneliness, And the unanswered questions, it doesn't feel light, nor does it feel momentary. And I suspect Naomi did not feel the burdens that she felt lightly, nor did she think they would end soon. There's suffering that comes along with the providence of God. We know the end of the story. Isn't that great? I mean, we know the end of this story. She didn't. She had no idea. John Newton wrote. This is probably one of my favorite quotes of John Newton. I mean, I like his hymn, Amazing Grace, but I like this quote. Some Christians are called to endure a disproportionate amount of suffering. Such Christians are a spectacle of grace to the church like flaming bushes, unconsumed, and cause us to ask like Moses Why is this bush not burned up? The strength and stability of these believers can be explained only by the miracle of God's sustaining grace. The God who sustains Christians in unceasing pain is the same God with the same grace who sustains me in my smaller sufferings. We marvel at God's persevering grace and grow in our confidence in Him as He governs ours lives, a disproportionate amount of suffering. We could apply that phrase to Ruth, to Naomi, particularly to Naomi, the weight she must have felt, the loss that she had suffered, and the uncertainty of tomorrow. I mean, understand all of her sustenance was gone. But we know the end of the story, as I said. We know that God is going to provide. But she didn't know that. We need to understand that the suffering that we face in this life, it's not compared and can't be compared to the Glory that will be revealed to us. With all this going on, with everything lost, her husband dead, her son's dead, her daughter's-in-law still there. Verse 6, it says that she arose with her daughter's-in-law to return from the country of Moab. Why? Why? She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Isn't that great? Famine's over, you know. And she heard the news in the fields of Moab. Now, the fields of Moab, that's a pretty interesting thought since most of Moab is either desert or mountains. Wouldn't be anything growing in the desert. And the fields would be pretty small. But nevertheless, evidently, there were some people, sojourners maybe, passing through that had come from Bethlehem and say, God has provided for his people in Bethlehem, in Israel. The famine is now over. And here what we find is the hope of God's providence. The Lord had visited his people and given them food. This was news that stirred Naomi to rise up and return to Bethlehem to get on the road. That's not an easy task, by the way. Between Moab and Bethlehem is the Dead Sea. And that's a nasty little body of water. But she said, we're going. And so they started heading back to Bethlehem. And along the way, Naomi is struck. I mean, she has hope. Here just a couple of weeks ago, sitting outside, and I looked off to the west, and I got trees that kind of block the horizon. My horizon looks a little bit like this, okay? Uh, But you can look out, and you could see some pretty nice sunsets, you know, going down between the trees, and there were some clouds, and the sun had already faded and it had already gone down behind the trees. But these clouds had lining around them, white, and beams of light coming out through them. I could look at those beams of light just straight on. Matter of fact, I took a picture of. I could never do that with the sun. It was diminished light because it was passing through the darkness of those clouds. But it was light nonetheless. It's like being in a house at night and all the lights are out except for one room. It's not enough light to light up the room you're in but it's enough light to see that there's light on the other side. And Naomi picked up everything she had and brought her two daughters-in-law with her and said, let's go to Bethlehem. I see light. I hear God has provided. Along the way, Naomi having this hope is struck with the reality of the hopelessness that Orpah and Ruth have in their lives if they return with her to Bethlehem. She's struck with the hopelessness that they wouldn't be able to marry and have children. What are you going to do? Wait around? I mean, she, she says it. She set out, verse 7, from the place where she was with her two her daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord, grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? She goes on and says, Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Really beyond the years of bearing children, she said. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughter. Beyond the years of childbearing, and even if she could, they would have to wait for years. This plea of Naomi is filled with hope for these girls. I'm going to introduce you to a Hebrew word here, hesed. It's First mentioned here in verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8, where it says, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly. With you. May Yahweh deal kindly with you. May my God deal kindly with you. On what basis as you have dealt with the dead, your husbands, and with me, a widow? This word hesed means uh, kind, loyal, faithful. Thematically, we see it here and we see it. Ongoing, and particularly how we see it, is it sets the stage. This word right here sets the stage for the rest of the story as the Hesed of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz give way to the Hesed, the loyalty, the faithfulness of God. Their faithfulness is pointing to His faithfulness all the way through. Something we need to know God's always faithful. We're not, but He is. He has great hope for them. I, I want you to be dealt with kindly just like you've dealt with me kindly, just like you've dealt with my sons kindly. So she's trying to pour hope to them. She says, I don't have any sons, more sons. I'm not going to have any more sons. The likelihood of that are very little, very slim. Go back to your land. Go back to your gods. Go back to your customs. Orpah finally relents after Naomi says, For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me then they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her and she said see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her God's return after your sister-in-law there's Ruth clinging to Naomi Orpah went away what convinced her was my God is turned against me here Naomi starts revealing her theology three three points to it god exists god is sovereign and god has afflicted me that's Naomi's theology She's right on the money. God does exist. God is sovereign. And God does afflict. But with great purpose. What she didn't see is what Joseph didn't see and what Job didn't see. Joseph didn't see that he would rescue... God had given him visions, God had given him dreams, but he didn't understand them until it happened. Naomi can't see that not only am I going to bring redemption, but I'm going to bring you a son. I'm going to bring you great joy and you're going to be cared for, and you're going to be loved. She couldn't see it. All she could see was the weight and the burden of being a widow and having no redemption. God exists. God is sovereign, and God has afflicted me. That's what she thinks. But out of this hope that she has that gets her moving toward Bethlehem comes the salvation of providence. Look what it says. Verse 15, she said, "'See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, "'Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you.'" For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is no less than conversion. Ruth is forsaking her own land. She is forsaking her her own people. She is forsaking her own gods. She says that. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. She's forsaking all that she has known for Naomi and her God. You know what's striking about this? Listen to the gospel that Ruth has heard. God brings famine on his people. He leaves women abandoned, and their husband and their sons die. This is the gospel that she's heard. She was in Moab, remember? She married one of the sons. I mean, she has seen the hand of God against Naomi firsthand and heard Naomi's testimony of God's hard providence on her. She's heard that God sends famine on his own people, but to be fair, he also visits them and provides for them. Here's the gospel from Naomi the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Later on, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? That's the gospel that Ruth heard. Can y'all hear that? I mean, think about it. All right, What if I stood up here, I guess kind of I do, and just preached this gospel that said, God loves you, he wants you to come to him through his son Jesus, and once you are saved, he's going to bring people into your life to beat the pulp out of you. They're going to imprison you and they are going to break you. They're going to haul off your family and your kids. Crickets to that gospel, right? But that's the gospel Ruth heard and she clung to Naomi. Y'all know why? Well, did she... Did she have some disability that didn't enable her to think clearly? No. No. I want you to know it was the sovereign hand of God putting in her the love for her mother-in-law, but also the love to say, your God will be my God. It's God stirring the heart that seems only hopelessness and then hears the gospel and comes running to it. Like the centurion, the story that was told of some Christians that were being executed by being exposed to the elements. They were stripped naked and taken out into a pond that was freezing. And they would not confess that Caesar is Lord. One finally did and he ran out of the pond and and up there and burned incense to Caesar and said, Caesar is Lord. And when he did that, one of the Roman centurions stripped off his clothing and ran out into the pond. I declare myself a Christian and there he died. But it says where you go, I'm gonna go. If you're gonna die, I'm gonna die with you. I'm gonna be with your people. Your people, they're gonna be my people. I'm gonna become like you. This is no less than conversion. God saving and transforming and making new this woman from Moab. going I take just a couple of moments. Give you three things, three lessons. They're short. Y'all believe that by now. Number one, God is sovereign. Don't you ever forget it? God does not owe you nor me an explanation as to why He does the things He does when He does them. He is sovereign. Absolutely, totally. Yet he helps us to know that he is reigning and ruling to accomplish his good and glorious purposes. Y'all know that we, that we know him at all is a mercy undeserved. He has made known to us. We didn't find him. He made himself known to us. Our sin and his love for us, and he doesn't have to do that. There's no obligation to do that. But he's done it. How wonderful is that. Second, God works in mysterious ways. We certainly see that in this story, and in the story of Joseph, and the story of Job. works in mysterious ways. I can't say that without thinking of William Cooper, a contemporary of John Newton. And he wrote many of the hymns in the old hymnal that John Newton put together. He had invited him to come and to write. He was a very good, gifted writer in England. But something about William Cooper is is that he attempted to take his own life more than half a dozen times before he came to know Christ and more than half a dozen times after he came to know. Much conflict in his mind and his heart. Much pain, darkness. He wrote a hymn called God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Anybody ever heard that hymn? All right. Am I it? I guess so. Allow me to read you the text. The lyric, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage, take the clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. Faith sees a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. And He does. The original title for that hymn is Conflict, Light Shining Out of Darkness. It's thought to be William Cooper's final hymn that he wrote and really kind of a reflection of his life and how God had worked. It's speculated that it was written following one of the last failed attempts at suicide by him. God works in mysterious ways. Here I am talking about a guy who most of us have never heard of, but we've heard his songs. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. guy was in an insane asylum for 18 months, but he never lost sight of this God who is sovereign and who works mysteriously but redeems nonetheless by his grace and not by the merit of any man. The last thing I would say is this, God liberates us to believe him. I mean, Ruth, come on. She just said the hand of this God is against her. And you want to follow him? With all my heart, is what she said. I mean, that's it. With all I have, yes. With all my life, I forsake everything that I once was and I come only to him. That's what God does in people. Do y'all know that? I mean, he liberates us and sets us free from the fears and the bondage of things. Like Esther. If I die, I die. Or like Moses, who after he grew up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Or like Job, whose wife said, curse God and die. Said, no, 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 no. My Redeemer, He lives, and though He slay me, I will trust in Him. Or maybe like Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We see the sorrow and suffering of providence and then we see the hope and salvation of it. God working to do and accomplish his will for his glory. And as it turns out, for our good. Praise be to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ways in which you work We do not always understand them, but we trust you. We hope in you. And God, I pray, Lord, that we would be willing, Lord, to lay everything down for the sake of Christ, for the sake of your glory. And Lord, that we would hope and believe only in Christ to take away our sin, And to give us life. We praise you O God. And we thank you. For your goodness. And your grace. And your willingness to make yourself known to us. That by hearing the foolishness of preaching. We would see. And hear. And understand. The gospel. God, continue to transform us by your word that we would be pleasing to you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.